Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Grunge Bible Podcast. My name is Chris Salona, and this is episode 16. Once again this week, uh, Ethan is not available to join us. So last week, uh, if you tuned in, uh, he was competing at the United States uh, Track and Field Olympic Trials out in Eugene, Oregon. And since then, he is uh, he is missing in action in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he has been uh, you know traveling throughout Oregon, and he did make his way to Seattle. So uh, when he emerges from the wilderness uh, next week, we'll have to have a nice little catch up with him about how the Olympic Trials went and what it was like going to Seattle. Obviously, given the genre that we discuss here. Uh, Seattle is a location that is near and dear to many of our hearts. Uh, I have not been, uh, but he is able to cross that off of the proverbial bucket list this week, uh, and we'll have to we'll have to hear hear what the Space Needle looks like in real life, and if any other uh, grunge landmarks that he was able to to check off of the list, we'll be uh, excited to hear from him there. But yep, yeah, for this week it is once again just me. I want to be casting this pod by my lonesome again, but we've got some good content here as usual. I hope everybody's having a good week thus far. Um, if you're in the United States, it's been quite the heat wave going on. Uh, yesterday, I think where I am, it got up to about 99 degrees, and my apartment's air conditioning units are uh, very ineffectual, so it was uh, it was getting a little warm in here. But that's okay. You know, sometimes you got to get a little uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, still get after it nonetheless. But this week, uh, we're going to talk about some deep cuts. And if you're like me, one of your one of one of the best parts about being a music fan and being a fan of a specific band is really getting into their discography and you know, kind of searching out songs that you know might not be as popular, but you know, you might you might be connected to or find a connection with you know just as strongly as the ones that get a lot of radio airplay or you know, the ones that do top the charts. So I'm excited to kind of chat about some of my more notable deep cuts from the genre. And as always, I'm excited to hear what your deep cuts are as well. Uh, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Grunge Bible 5 Top 5 Patreon supporters. Uh, they are, as you know, Release, Sonny Mashburn, Alexis Shannon, Shannon Gorgone, and Victor Schaefer. So once again to you five, thank you uh, for sustaining us. We're 16 weeks in now to this podcast experiment, so we're very grateful that you're still here and you're still listening and you're still choosing to support us. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. And, you know, something about deep cuts, and and I think for a lot of us listening to this podcast, um, you know, listening to grunge rock, as they call it, is not the most casual thing. Certainly, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably pretty into the genre. And I think when I was compiling the list of some of my favorite deep cuts, I, I noticed that you know when you listen to a band or you listen to a band's discography so much, the line kind of blurs between what's a popular song, you know, commercially or just to the general public, and what might be a deep cut. You know, so for example, you take an album and you know you're listening to a song and. You've listened to that album front to back so many times. You know you have you've had your favorite songs for years and years now, and they may not be the Alive's or the Smells Like Teen Spirits of the World or the Roosters of the World, but you know to you they're you know them like the back of your hand, so they don't really feel like they're a deep cut. Um, you know, so that was kind of difficult. You know, kind of checking myself against what might be considered to be a deep cut to the average person. And, you know, what we all, you know, we know these albums, a lot of them like the back of our hands, as I was saying. So it's kind of interesting. And another thing that, you know, I start to think about when I think about deep cuts is, 
you know, how songs become popular and how songs get a lot of commercial airplay and how some songs don't. And, you know, what that question is when it comes to that, you know, in that process, you know, do we feel as though the best, you know, whatever that means to you, do the best songs always become the most popular ones? And, and I would say no. And it's, and it's interesting when you kind of take a look at the anatomy of, you know, what makes a song popular and, and what gets songs, uh, you know, onto the air. And I think a lot of it is marketing. Um, you know, a lot of it, you know, the record companies at the time can push certain songs, uh, and there could be conflict with that sometimes. So for example, even with, uh, the 10 album from Pearl Jam, uh, Epic Records really wanted to release Black as a single. And uh, Eddie Vedder specifically, you know, spoke up and said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, something this emotional really shouldn't be released as a single. And, you know, with songs popularity, especially at the time in the early 90s when MTV was still, you know, the hottest of commodities, um, you know, making a music video was pretty much a surefire way to make that song commercially successful. And, you know, Pearl Jam, for example, uh, you know, decided against making music videos, I think, you know, sometime after the 10 album, and they didn't make a music video for a long time. Um, so I think when it comes to popularity, obviously, the song has to be good, it has to be catchy, it has to be appealing, you know, to the ear. But I think, you know, a concerted effort can can do a lot of good to making a song popular. And it's always interesting when you look back, you know, years later, you know, to see where those efforts were put and, you know, what songs maybe didn't receive those efforts that you think back and you're like, man, this really could have been a single or, you know, if only more people knew about this, you know, they'd be able to relate to it more. So it's always really interesting to think about that. Um, you know, and I'd love to hear what everybody has to think about that, you know, in the sense that do the best songs always become the most popular songs? And, and I think probably for a lot of us listening and certainly for myself, uh, a lot of my favorite songs from these bands are probably not the ones that were, you know, the most commercially successful. And that's not to say that I don't like those songs. I mean, I obviously do. I mean, I love Man in the Box, for example, or I love, you know, Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden or Nearly Lost You from the Trees or you know, the list goes on, uh, River of Deceit from Mad Season, for example. Um, but it is really interesting to kind of think back and see, you know, and just kind of think about what that alternate reality would be where, you know, if Leash from the Versus album was just as popular, uh, you know, as some of the other songs off of that album, for example. But it's always good to think about. But I think, you know, when we're leading off here in terms of some deep tracks, we'll start with Alice in Chains. Uh, as you know, the page is pretty heavy in Alice in Chains, uh, you know, with the whole wood thing going on. And, and you know, we're still we're, we're still going into the flood every week, every day. Uh, so that's always something to keep in mind. But obviously, wood is not what one would consider to be a deep track. And uh, we've certainly done our best to kill it around these parts. But in terms of some notable deep tracks from Alice in Chains that I really, you know, if I could suggests that somebody who likes Alice in Chains that may not know much of their discography, you know, immediately I think my first my first suggestion would be off of the SAP EP, Right Turn, uh, which features guest vocals from Chris Cornell and Mark Arm. And I believe on the liner notes, it was credited to Alice Mudgarden. So just a nice, healthy conglomeration of Seattle bands there. Um, that one is just fantastic. And I think when we think of Alice in Chains, I mean, the the vocal harmonies are, you know, what we're drawn to a lot of times and just the way that they kind of play with the different alternate tunings that they might use and the time signatures and everything. But I mean, Lane and Jerry's voices were so complimentary to one another. Um, and when you add Mark Arm and when you add Chris Cornell and they're all going at it, all four of them at the same time on the vocals, I mean, that's something that's going to be very special. Um, so right turn, uh, 
uh, is certainly my my favorite of the deep tracks from Alice in Chains. Um, moving on to the Facelift album, uh, my favorite song from Facelift has probably always been Sunshine. I don't know what it is about it. It's just really just hard driving, and Lane's vocals are top notch as they always are, particularly in this era. Um, Sunshine is another one from them, and then moving on to you know the the other notable EP from Alice in Chains, we've got Jar of Flies, and Swing on This is just a really um, you know I think when you have a when you have, when you have an EP that has something like Nutshell on it um, or even No Excuses, I mean. There's only so much attention you can give to the songs that are further down on that EP. And I think Swing on This gets forgotten about a little bit. Um, but there's really some cool things going on there. You know, I think the Jar of Flies album was so cool because it was such a departure from what they had done on Dirt and what they had done, you know, on Facelift. Um, and Swing on This is such a great example of that and just, you know, how they were really, you know, they visited a sound that was new to them. But despite the fact that it was new to them, they really knocked it out of the park. So that's another one that you know, to get the full picture of what Alice in Chains is and was and what they were capable of at the time. I think those are three great songs that, you know, every every Alice in Chains fan or every, you know, Rooster fan or Man in the Box fan should really check out, you know, really gain a new appreciation for that band. Um, moving on to Nirvana, and I think Nirvana is in such a unique position because, you know, with Kurt Cobain, you know, in, in, in his life and, and his death, obviously, and the fact that they had only released three studio albums, I think Nirvana is one of those bands that they're so heavily scrutinized, and not in a negative way, but there's their music is under such a microscope because of how iconic they were and how iconic Kurt Cobain was, you know, both as a musician, as a pop culture icon, and just as a human being. Um, it's really, really hard to differentiate what could be considered a deep cut. I mean, so if you take an album like Nevermind, for example, I mean, every single song on that album is has been under a microscope and has been analyzed and has been listened to, you know, for the past 30 years. It'll be 30 years this fall. Um, so it's really kind of difficult to, to decipher, you know, as I was speaking about earlier, it's difficult to decipher what is a deep cut from Nirvana. Um, but two, two that I, I like to think of... Uh, you know, the, the Bleach album, you know, aside from some of the headliners on there, um, like About a Girl, which became very popularized, obviously, after Unplugged. Uh, and then you have Floyd the Barber, for example. But uh, I've always been a big cheese guy. Um, I think that's a great place to start and, uh, you know, to really get a feel for, you know, who Nirvana was, you know, prior to Nevermind. Uh, I think that's a great place to start. Additionally, um, one that was never released on an album, I think, until the 2004 i want to say compilation album uh that was i think eponymous it was just titled nirvana but you know you're right which if i remember correctly was the last if not one of the last songs that uh you know the band had recorded and um you know when you put these songs into a time and place specifically you know you're right um you know it really kind of gives you a, a window into into the band at the time and into kurt at the time and uh, it's a really, really heavy performance, um, especially when you take a look at some of those lyrics and, um, you know, to kind of maybe as a window into what was going on at the time. Uh, and who knows if it was meant for that, but even, you know, whether it was subconscious or not. But that's such a great song and it's quintessential Nirvana. You know, if you think about it, you've got the you've got the drums and Kurt's just angsty vocals. And I know angsty is an overused word, but I mean... I don't really know how else to describe it, but, um, you know, a great effort. And, you know, it's really interesting. I think, you know, towards the end of In Utero, when that came out, um, 
you know, Kurt was really exhausted with three chord grunge, as he called it. And it really would have been interesting to see, you know, where the band would have gone or even if they had, were to have continued after, you know, after the tour and maybe after 1994. Um, you know, in this song, You Know You're Right was really kind of could have been one of those last breaths of that formula that they were using, you know, of three chord grunge of, you know, of punk, you know, punk inspired elements to, to their rock and roll sound. But uh, it's a really interesting window into maybe what could have been. Uh, moving on to Soundgarden, uh, I have definitely spoken about these two songs that I've chosen uh, on the podcast before, but fuck it, I gotta mention them again because they're that good. If you haven't listened by now, I implore you, you have to check these songs out. The first one being off of Super Unknown, uh, which once again has their biggest commercial hit, and one of the biggest commercial hits of the 90s, Black Hole Sun, but the real fun is somewhere else on the record in my opinion and that's fourth of july and i'm recording this podcast on june 30th so the fourth fourth of july is coming around very soon so you can expect uh probably more than a few posts about that song if i can find some good live video for it but i mean it's just it's just a march through hell as i've said before and it's got some of the best lyrics and you know it's just so 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 heavy um definitely not the type of thing that was radio friendly. So it's really not a surprise that it didn't receive, you know, commercial acclaim. And I, it certainly got a lot of critical acclaim and a lot of people point to it as maybe one of Soundgarden's best compositions. But, um, I mean, just like the slow, heavy sludge, those guitars tuned all the way down. And Chris is just absolutely apocalyptic lyrics and his delivery of those lyrics. Um, really, really incredible song. Uh, and as I, I've said before on this podcast, if I could choose one song to introduce somebody to Soundgarden, I think I would pick Fourth of July. Um, moving on to their next album, uh, Down on the Upside, which was their last album prior to their hiatus, um, Zero Chance, um, probably one of the sadder songs, in my opinion, to come out of uh, the entire genre and the entire era of what we consider to be grunge. Um, but really just such a heavy composition and it's so well put together with the, you know, the different guitar parts and the entire band fits so cohesively into it. And so I've said before, I'm a really big fan of lyrics and I, you know, I spend a lot of time kind of thinking about lyrics and, and this one, you know, is just so desolate and so isolative. Um, and it really kind of speaks to the human condition of loneliness, I think. And you know, obviously, I think everybody, you know, specifically a lot of these individuals that were writing these songs, you know, you go through different bouts and you experience different emotions and, you know, you, you feel loneliness despite the fame, you know, uh, and I think this was a really, really good exercise in kind of, um, you know, hashing out some of those ideas onto paper. And certainly, I think a lot of us, we know this song, we've been able to relate to it at certain points in our lives. And that's really what it's all about when it comes to music is you're able to take it and, you know, identify with it and, uh, you know, maybe apply it to something that's happened in your life and it, you'll find some comfort in it. But uh, 4th of July and Zero Chance, I mean, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they sound like. But once again, speaking to the versatility of these bands and, you know, a few bands I think were more versatile than Soundgarden in terms of what they brought to the table and what they could create and what they could create well. We'll move on next to the last member of the Big Four, uh, and that is Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam is far and away uh, my most listened to of all of the grunge bands or what we would consider to be grunge. So as I was speaking about earlier, this is where it got really difficult for me to kind of think, you know, well, what is a deep track for Pearl Jam? Because I pretty much know them all. 
Uh, so it was really kind of hard to decipher. It's like, is that a deep track or, you know, do I listen to it too much that I don't really think it is, but like nobody else would, would, would know what this song is or would really pay attention to it. Um, but off of the Versus album, one that I really picked um, was Rats. And I think this is just a really, really good testament to, you know, the era in which Dave Abruzis was in the band. I mean, he brought such a good groove to the band. Everybody loves to talk about, uh, you know, how he would just bang the hell out of the drum set and just, you know, he brought so much power um, to the drums. But I really think he had such a gift for just, you know, just grooving, you know, almost like, I mean, he could set up in a funk band and he would sound great. Um and this song, for example, it's it's got a lot of, you know, groovy, funky little elements to it. I mean, especially with that bass line on Rats and, you know, Eddie Vedder's lyrics. I mean, we're just such a great, uh, you know, such a great window, I think, into humanity. And, you know, the, the message of the song to me seems to be like, like, look at all these rats. It's like at the end of the day, like, you know, they don't fuck over their, you know, their fellow individual quite like humans do. Um you know, starve the poor so we could be well fed, for example. Um, you know, it's it's just a really, really good song, uh, you know, when you kind of think about what human nature might be. And I know for much of his uh, songwriting career, you know, even specifically in that time, Ed was writing about a lot of these things. You know, you take a look at Even Flow, you take a look at WMA, for example, um, you know, this subject matter about, you know, how humans treat each other, uh, and what different humans go through. Uh, it was really at the forefront of some of the things he was writing about. And, and this is just a great window into the power that Pearl Jam had at the time. And, you know, going into the studio for verses after 10 exploded, you know, the, the expectations were so high and they were able to deliver. And, and this is a great window into, I think, what Pearl Jam was capable of. Uh, we'll fast forward a, a few years uh, up to 1998 with the Yield album. One of my favorite songs off of Yield is All Those Yesterdays. And, and I think I would consider it to be a deep cut. I mean, it certainly doesn't get the airplay. I mean, nothing nothing for Pearl Jam, you know, really after Vitalogy got, you know, the airplay that the first three albums did and the singles from those first three albums did. But All Those Yesterdays is really... Um, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a great song, and, and I love Mike McCready's guitar work on this one. Um, this is a great one to see live because you know I think Mike McCready is one of those musicians that sounds infinitely better live than he does on on you know in studio, and and he certainly sounds you know um, messianic in the studio. So the you know the the bar is already high, and he somehow finds a way to to exceed it. And I saw them play all those yesterdays live. Um, at Fenway Park in 2016, which was my first Pearl Jam show. Um, and, you know, that sold me on all those yesterdays. You know, once again, I just think a great a great window into, you know, how Pearl Jam, you know, how they're able to make music and how they're able to construct these songs. Um, so that's one. If, if you haven't listened to it in a while, uh, you know, give, give another listen. And I think it's got a good build to it, uh, you know, until things kind of come to a head and Mike McCready hits that guitar solo and, um I always kind of compare and contrast this song with Dissident. So in Dissident, um, you know, Ed's singing that escape is never the safest path. Uh, and then in this song, uh, he's got a lyric that it's no crime to escape. Um, and, you know, it's really kind of interesting to, you know, certainly I don't know if it's intentional or not, you know, with that juxtaposition. I mean, five years later on, on different albums at different points in life. But it's always funny to kind of draw those comparisons. But those two songs are inextricably linked in my head for that reason but they're both amazing uh if you know me you know i love dissident and i do love all those yesterdays as well we're gonna get out of the big four a little bit and we're gonna go to the only grunge band that exists mud honey 
And I think um, Mudhoney is one of those bands that's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in the sense that, you know, maybe not a lot of us have really, you know, uh, trawled through their discography and really know it like the back of our hands. And certainly I don't, I certainly am not as knowledgeable about Mudhoney's discography as I would be about a Pearl Jam or a Soundgarden, for example. But um, song for me, uh, Mudhoney off of their eponymous 1989 album that, Thing is a, is once again a good window that maybe doesn't get enough 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 listens would be when tomorrow hits um it's just kind of this like droning march and you know obviously mud honey is such a you know fast paced mark arms screaming everybody just going nuts band and this song's kind of a nice little departure from that and i i think it really you know showcases that you know similar to all of these bands. I mean, none of these bands were one trick ponies. None of these musicians were one trick ponies. And you know, the fact that the, you know, they can slow the tempo down and still put something really good together. Uh, that's why when tomorrow hits, we'll get my vote as a, uh, must listen deep cut for mud honey. Another band, uh, that I think, uh, a lot of us are familiar with certainly because of some of their singles and, uh, their inclusion actually on the single soundtrack uh, would be the screaming trees uh and i'm i'm a particularly big fan of mark lanigan i mean everything that he's done his solo work his work with the trees his work with queens of the stone age uh the gutter twins isabel campbell you name it um i mean he's just he's just such a gifted songwriter and you know his voice if you're into that kind of you know raspy low baritone type thing uh which i certainly am i mean he's He's just incredible and 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 his his um his his latitude i guess as a songwriter is really really impressive but uh, a great screaming trees song uh that is not off of sweet oblivion i feel like that is the record that certainly most people are familiar with but we'll go back to uh a few years prior with uncle anesthesia uh alice said is a great song and this was at the point prior to um, the era in which Mark was actually writing the lyrics. So I believe the Connor brothers were still writing the lyrics at this time, but, um, it's a really, really great song. It's a great driving song. Uh, it's a great, just up tempo, you know, good time song. Um, the drums are really, really great on this one. And, uh, it's just a really well put together song. And I think it's a, um, you know, a good microcosm of, you know, who the screaming trees were, uh, and Mark Lanigan's vocals deliver, you know, incredibly well as they as they always did despite uh everything that he was going through through these times and you know just as a editorial note if you are not aware he released a memoir last year called sing backwards and weep which was kind of a chronicle of his life and um mark has seen it all and he's been through hell and he's still here and it's and it's wild having read that to know, you know, what he was creating at the time, despite everything that was going on, despite the fact that he was half dead, you know, for most of the 1990s, really happy he's still here. He's still working tirelessly. He releases new music, you know, multiple times a year. And you know, I'm sure he can't wait to get back out on the road and tour. And that's somebody that I am uh, greatly anticipating having the chance to see live, you know, when the time comes once again. But Alice said is a great tune uh, to check out and I recommend it. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots are up next. Um, love Stone Temple Pilots. And, and one that always has jumped out for me, uh, you know, just thinking about Scott Weiland is uh, Adhesive, which is off of the Tiny Music album. And Adhesive is kind of one of those slower, you know, I guess, ballady songs. And, you know, it's got a lot of different elements to it. And um, one thing that I would recommend with this song is I believe on YouTube there is a vocals only uh 
where they isolated Scott's uh, vocal track to adhesive. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a, such a good song. And Scott was one of those guys too. I think he's right up there, you know, with, with Chris Cornell or with Lane in terms of, you know, their vocal, um, their range and, you know, how their voices were able to fit, um, you know, with so many different styled songs. I mean, you figure if you saw them at this time, there was a chance that he could have delivered sex type thing and then adhesive. And then, you know, later on, maybe Atlanta all within the same 20 minute stretch. And, you know, I mean the band too, that they're able to play something like wicked garden and then they're able to slow it down for, you know, something like pretty penny or, or adhesive, especially, um, you know, a great song. And I think it's a really, really great example of, you know, just how good these bands were, especially, you know, with stone temple pilots, how a lot of people, uh, you know, detracted them as being, you know, Pearl Jam ripoffs or whatever. I mean, you, you throw on adhesive and I mean that, that pretty much kicks that theory to the curb. Um, and I certainly don't, you know, think those opinions hold any credence, just like the people that say silver chair, or just Nirvana jr. I mean, I think in my opinion, the only reason they make that distinction is the fact that Daniel Johns had blonde hair and they're like, Oh, he kind of looks like Kurt Cobain. So they're Nirvana. Um, I think it's all bullshit. And I think all of these bands have really unique things to bring to the table. And I mean, case in point, that's why we're still talking about them in the year 2021. That's why you know, I'm sitting down podcasting about it. That's why you're listening to it. That's why we have these Instagram pages and that's why we're still listening to these songs. Uh, they have a lot of staying power. Um, and one band that was there at the beginning that, you know, I've certainly been getting more and more into as time has gone on uh, is Mother Love Bone. And, you know, tragically short career, tragically short life for Andrew Wood, um, you know, struggling with addiction, as many of these individuals did. And um, I believe in 2016, Mother Love Bone, uh, or the surviving elements of Mother Love Bone released a compilation box called On Earth As It Is, which was a complete set of all of their demos uh that they felt you know they were able to release uh as well as their entire discography and there's there's been one song on that uh compilation tape and it's called bloody shame and it's just uh you know it sounds like a demo it's certainly not super super polished and it's it's very stripped down i mean it's basically just andrew wood and a guitar uh i'm not quite sure who was playing the guitar but uh, man, just such a desolate song. I mean, obviously, as you can infer by the title, but, um, you know, another one that can kind of give you a nice window into, you know, what this band was capable of, um, you know, and, and, and I think out of all of the bands, you know, that had short lives, uh, creatively and, and certainly Andrew Wood as a, as a, as a musician, and as a person, you know, I always, I think a lot about, you know, what this band could have been and, and certainly what Andrew Wood, um, still had, you know, in terms of, you know, what he wanted to share with the world. And, and it's just, it's just really tragic that, you know, he passed away so young and uh, we weren't able to hear more of it, but I was certainly excited when this box set came out. And uh, I think bloody shame is a song that you absolutely have to listen to, uh, to really kind of increase your appreciation for mother love bone and who they were. Um, the last band that I pulled something for is another band that, you know, really didn't release a whole lot of music. Uh, and, you know, they were one of the super groups of the mid nineties and that's mad season. Um, obviously with, uh, Barrett Martin from the trees on drums, you had John Baker Saunders on bass, Mike McCready on guitar. Um, and then you had Lane Staley obviously taking vocals, but additionally, uh, Mark Lanigan did lend some of his vocals, um, uh, obviously to long gone day, as we know, you know, on, on the, on the studio album, uh, and, uh, and a couple of shows they did, I, the one notable show they did at the Moor in 1995, I believe Mark was there. Um, 
And then Mad Season obviously never created another album after Above. Um, and some years later, I want to say this was in 2013, um, they released the de deluxe edition of Above. And at that time, they still had some unfinished demos where, you know, the songs were fairly complete, but there were no vocals laid down. There were no no lyrics created because obviously, you know, after 1995, 1996, uh, things got really hard for Lane Staley. And, you know, he did not create much music, uh, certainly did not create much music that was released uh and mad season you know never really never reassembled as they were you know in that era um but the surviving members of the band uh barrett and uh and mike mccready uh they reached out to mark lanigan and they they sent him a couple of tracks and pretty much asked him if they want if he wanted to write on them and maybe record something and um a couple of the ones that he did uh one is called slip away but my favorite um is called black book of fear um, and it's just, I mean, one of the heaviest songs that, you know, I can imagine, especially with the perspective of, you know, maybe writing it from the view of, you know, what happened to Mad Season, what happened to Lane. I mean, uh, you know, Mark Lanigan and Lane Staley were such good friends, uh, you know, and they, they, you know, were on this project together. They, I think, lived together for a while uh, and they were certainly very close friends and, you know, everything that had transpired in the 1990s and, you know, these lyrics in this song and, and, you know, the guitar and just how all of the band fits together on this one is, is the perfect example, I think, of just how talented Mad Season was. Um, you know, it's kind of, I, I like to think of it as like the sister song to River of Deceit, for example. Um, and, you know, Black Book of Fear is just one of those songs. I remember the first time I heard it, you know, I kind of stopped what I was doing. I had to. I had to stop what I was doing and, you know, I listened to it a few times, pulled up the lyrics and just read along and I was floored. Um, you know, it's a testament to Mark Lanigan as a songwriter and, you know, what these people were able to create. And, and I think at the end of the day, that is always the most attractive thing to me when it comes to these songs and when it comes to music in general is it's, you know, these individuals' abilities to feel emotion, process experience and you know, put it out on paper in such a way that it's, it's, it's consumable for us and that we find value into it. Um, you know, and, and I think that's a perfect example of it. And, uh, now as happenstance would have it, uh, I just read an inter interview with Mark Lanigan, uh, last night. Um, and they were asking him, you know, off of a song, uh, about a song, uh, from straight songs of sorrow, which is, uh, an album that he came out with in 2020. And, and the, uh, interviewer was asking kind of what inspired, um, what inspired one of the songs and Mark had this great quote, which I really, really appreciate. Uh, and he said, you know, once I put something out into the world, it belongs to whoever connects with it. I personally have never considered what my favorite artists were writing about. I only cared about what their songs meant to me. And I think that is the most honest and most true way, you know, that you can consume music and probably the most honest and the most true way that you can create music and, and write music. You know, I think, your truest self comes out when you're not really writing it, you know, in terms of, I really want to get this message across, but it's just kind of putting your feelings and, and your mind out into the world and seeing who connects with it. And, and certainly out of all of the songs that we've ever posted on the page and certainly the ones that we've maybe mentioned today, um, they mean different things to different people. Um, and, and, you know, they have different levels of importance for different people and, you know, they're just, they're all powerful for different reasons. And I think that's, one of my favorite things about art, it's probably my favorite thing about art is the fact that it's, you know, it's up to our own interpretations. And in my opinion, everybody's right. 
you know, somebody can hear something and, and it can bring them solace for something or help them understand something. And, and they're right, you know, uh, because it helps them. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's why, you know, we're, we're all still here talking about it is because, you know, these songs were able to, you know, in simplest terms, help us and, and, and add value to our lives and, you know, add a soundtrack to the occurrences and to the emotions that we've felt over the years. And I'm certainly grateful that all of these individuals decided to, you know, come together with their bandmates, you know, over the years and, and create songs and put them out into the world. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a blessing that we have this music to, uh, to sustain us, you know, when things get harder to, I put exclamation points on the good times and it's, um, you know, it's, it's a really good thing. And, and I'm really happy that we have these albums and a lot of deep tracks and had a lot of fun, you know, kind of thinking through these albums and thinking through these bands and thinking, you know, if I could, if I could share one song that somebody might not know, which one would it be? So, uh, hopefully you guys will go and check out these songs that I've listened to. And, and I'd love to hear what your favorite deep tracks are. There's certainly ones out there that I may not have paid, you know, my fair share of attention to, uh, you know, from these bands discography. So I'd love to hear what your picks are. Uh, and we'll have a nice solid discussion about some of our favorite grunge deep tracks. Uh, so I really appreciate that you guys are taking some time to listen today. Um, as always, we appreciate everybody's support on this show. Um, you know, whether it be liking, following, subscribing, uh, commenting, emailing, uh, supporting us via our Patreon page or buying merchandise. Uh, those links, as always, are available on grungebible.com. Uh, we're really appreciative for the support. Um, I say this probably every week, but uh, really, really enjoying, you know, sitting down. I'm feeling more uh, more comfortable. I definitely feel more connected to the audience now. And I'm, and I'm really, really just grateful for your attention and for your engagement. Uh, this makes it a lot of fun. This is, you know, why we run the page. This is why we have the podcast is to be able to, you know, talk about this music and, and just have conversations. Uh, so I'm really appreciative that we were able to have this conversation today. Uh, the plan is for Ethan to be back next week and we'll get into some other topics and maybe some more banter. Uh, Maybe uh, the ensuing episodes will have a little bit more humor to them as it's, uh, you know, the sound of one hand clapping is not uh, conducive to a whole lot of humor, but that's okay. There's time to experience everything. We intend on doing this for a long time, so uh, we'll definitely get our humor in just as we'll get our, uh, our informational or, or informative episodes in. Um, so we'll move forward with the song of the week, and um, Ethan's song of the week is Rainier Fog from Alice in Chains off of their uh, most recent studio album. So as I said at the beginning of this episode, uh, he's been spending some time up in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Seattle. Uh, he has seen the mighty Mount Rainier, and uh, he has thusly been inspired by it. So um, that's an album that I admittedly I need to go back and listen to a little bit more. I think with a lot of these bands that are still making music, I certainly kind of tend to fixate on the classics. Um, you know, even with the Stone Temple Pilots, for example, uh, with their new lead singer, Jeff Goot, like you got, you got to listen to them. I mean, it's good stuff. And you know, these are still the same bands uh, and they're putting out great music. So uh, I'm going to take some time and go back and listen to certainly Rainier Fog, but that entire album, uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, anything that Jerry Cantrell is involved with, uh, gets a check mark in my book and rumor has it he has a solo album that is coming out at some point in the future and i love me some solo jerry cantrell degradation trip body boggy depot love all of those but rainier fog would be ethan's uh entry for his song of the week and mine i just posted a few days ago and this is a band that 
um, you know, probably every, gosh, I don't know, every, every, you know, couple of weeks or so, I just go down the rabbit hole and I just become enamored with them for a few days until it fades away. And then I come right back and that's the tragically hip. And my song of the week is the last of the unplucked gems. And this is just, uh, you know, Gord Downey was such a special human being. And, and, and I wrote some stupid jumbled description of this song and what it means to me. And, and I really don't know. I wrote then that I don't know what I'm talking about, why it's special. I'm sitting here today recording this. I don't really know why it's just, it's just, it's just a special song. It's just kind of like atmospheric and it's got a lot of wide open space in it. Um, it just kind of gets, gets you kind of thinking about things and, uh, you know, um, I love the lyric, you know, that he repeats a couple times. He's like, I'm kind of dumb and so are you. Um, and he's, you know, he repeats the last of the unplugged gems. And I think I said this in the caption for that post that I made is like, I don't know what those last of the unplugged gems are. I don't know where they are. Uh, I don't doubt Gord Downey that they're out there. Um, but you know what, maybe they're just meant to be out there and, and who knows what he was talking about. But once again, that goes back to whatever that means, whatever your last of the unplucked gems are it's up to you if you want to if you want to pluck them or if you just want to let them be but great song i think it checks in in only like two and a half minutes so it's tragically short uh, i also did not mean to do that um given that the band's name is the tragically hip that was very lame of me and i apologize um you know it's so short so i always listen to it many times in a row uh, and just kind of space out but great song tragically hip or a band that you know everybody i think needs to listen listen to more and you, you need some more Gord Downey in, in your life. Um, so those will be our songs of the week. Uh, once again, I really hope that you enjoyed this episode, talking some deep cuts, some deep tracks from the grunge scene. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Drew McFadden, for uh, his tireless work uh, on this podcast series. Uh, it's been by our side, correcting all of our mess ups, all of our mishaps and all of our shitty sounding audio, but really appreciative for him. Uh, if you'd like to uh, show him some support um, or if you, you have any producing needs or engineering needs, uh, hit him up on Instagram. His Instagram is at Godeo Music, uh, G-O-D-E-O Music. Uh, so thank you once again to Drew and thank you to everybody for listening. I had a lot of fun kind of chatting today. Hope you enjoyed it. And we will catch up with you guys next week for episode 17, which will be the first episode of the month of July. It's wild to believe that this year is you know, halfway over now, and uh, we'll keep it rolling. And once again, thank you guys. Talk to you guys next week. Rock and roll. Take care.